On this week's How to Be 60, radio presenter and podcaster Ian Dale challenges himself to outsmart Karen and me. And I think he wins, hands down. I mean, I was basically a sauna whore. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Hello everyone, just one week to go before Karen McKenzie and I take the How To Be 60 podcast to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Um, personally, I am still bricking it. <laughs> Karen, for some bizarre reason, has clearly been overdoing the Xanax and she's looking forward to it. I My still head's no still in the why. sand. You what? My head's in the sand. It is. It is. It's you funny, isn't it? No but I'm idea. like that with life. I know it's not until the, you know it comes to it and I'm thinking... What the fuck? Absolutely. Exactly. There's a piece yeah. of music going to go. You're going to hear people rustling outside. Just. You're going to have. I'm going to have to push you on there, and then you're going to see the whites of their eyes, and then your flatulence is really going to kick in. Oh my god! If it's not already, <laughs> I know. The most I've ever done on stage before is the sort of safety element. You know, when you do a, a radio program <laughs> and you've got a live gig and you've got to come and see uh, the, <laughs> the fire exits are there. Uh, could you put your phones off? That's it. I've never been on stage before in my life. So, well, Karen, if I was worried before, I'm really worried now. <laughs> I, know. I hope you've got good guests. Well, we Nad- have. We have. We have. Nadia Sawal is coming up on the first day. My uh, chum and fellow loose woman. I'm really nervous about that because I bet you are. She's phenomenally indiscreet and she She'd knows all of my secrets. I'm um, loving that. I hope she takes a wee tipple and I can get her off backstage before we go on. Yeah, oh, gosh, she certainly does. A wee schooner of sherry. Na- schooner of sherry, no chance. Um, Nadia is convinced that the only way to avoid a hangover is to stick to high-grade tequila and champagne at the same time. And she very seriously, you know, advises people to drink this in order to avoid a hangover. Just keep going. Yeah, what are your holidays like together? Because oh, you go away together, don't you? Oh, God, I just cannot compete. I cannot compete. But anyway, after the Festival Fringe or maybe before the Festival Fringe, I'll be on the tequila and champagne. Might right, as well, well give share. it a go. Yes, yeah, yeah. She can share. I stages. thought you had something for me. Oh, I do. But I'm glad you've got, got a better memory than me. I know, I know you've gone on about this for God knows how long and then I, I had to remind you to... <gasps> She's gone into I've her paperboy bag. bag. Hold, a minute. I know. hold that up. Hold that up to the camera. For a Only a twelve-year-old. Oh. No, it's my pannier for my bike. Can we see? Are you it? sure that's not full of old copies of the Daily Express <laughs> that you've decided not to deliver? As if no, it's not very big. It's not very big. No, it's but not there very we are. big. It's, you're right. It's not very big. What is yeah, it? Yeah, you can be excited. Well, be excited so this or is not. a present from where? It's a present from Puglia, where I was on holiday. Mm. Now. Um, I'm trying to. There'll, there'll be there'll be one of um, our listeners who won't be very happy with me. I'm struggling to get her name because I did write it down. Of course, okay. I'm flaming well lost it now. What does it say? It's a fringe magnet. It's a fringe. It's not a fringe magnet. It's a fridge magnet. Well, it's only one. I was trying to peel it apart. I thought you'd at least got me two. But you don't need to read it out. What does it say? One fridge magnet. Jesus. Ah, excuse God. me. What did you bring me? You're away on holiday. Time oh. to be, take time to be offline. Yeah. Yes. I did say it wasn't exciting. Well, you were bloody right, that's for sure. I mean, why are we doing a podcast? Gypsy plus me, that's her name. She will not be happy with me because she's given me a hard time. Uh, you don't know who she is, but she's got in touch through Instagram and uh, she's given me a hard time for giving you a hard time. Good. Uh, for, oh, that's very good. It's magnetic. It <laughs> does it's work magnetic. then. Yeah, it's called um, a magnet. <laughs> for a... Uh, when it comes to social media, she said, we want to know what you're about, Kay. We want to, so just back off, Karen. It's not personal, just back off, Kay, because we want to know what's happening. What's this lady called? Um, Gypsy plus me. Gypsy, you are a very, very wise She says, woman. I'm bossy and I sound like a wee old granny, but she does add, I've not to take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds like a woman after your own heart, actually. <laughs> so here's my present. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to bring it next week. I'm going to bring it next week. And uh, it doesn't stop there. Oh, my I God. I made some tablet this morning for my friend, <laughs> so that's some for you. And Nathan, that's some for you as well. Now, if you're diabetic, or if you're not diabetic, you will be after you eat that, so for God's sakes, don't have it just now. I have to say, I love your tablet. I do. Have you tasted it before? I know you go on about the oat cakes in not a very complimentary fashion. Your oat cakes are absolutely honking. Honking? You're, honking. Yeah. Your elderflower cordial is 
viscous. Um, but your tablet, it's like phlegm. I mean, I don't know whether it should be going down or coming up, your elderflower cordial. You're a cheeky bitch. <laughs> You're a butt. Your tablet is super. You just talked about the tablet being like phlegm. <laughs> no, no, it's your elderflower cordial that's like phlegm. Get your story right. Right. No, your tablet is really, really good. Anyway, our guest today <laughs> is Ian Dale, um, who is also going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe. He's doing so many podcasts. He's podcast mad, the man. So I'm going to have to advice. ask him why. Um, but he's had a hell of a summer. We were, of course, remember, we were going to chat to him, uh, I think uh, it was on his 60th birthday, or it was going to go out on his uh-huh. 60th birthday, got COVID. Oh um, and then look. later on in the summer, he... Fell off a stage, had a wee accident and bust his knee. But worse of all. God, it gets worse. Worse than that, he got his senior person's bus pass. Ah, And had the temerity to post it on social media. What is wrong with him? Oh my God, it's brilliant. Having the bus pass is fantastic. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. It's just great. And you know what? I'm a bit tight, but very often I can get into the theatre and I use that as a wee kind of, you know, you're over 60s. And when I go camping in my camper van, you know, because I belong you're to the camping in caravan, you get an old, not an old age, I don't know what it's called. I actually can't remember age. the initials. But if you're over 60, you get a further discount. Oh my God, the pros are brilliant. I am never going to claim my bus pass or any concession related to my age. You don't get in a bus anyway, I don't think, do you? But it doesn't matter. I mean, it is, I mean, really. It's a snob. My, it's not been a snob. It's not been a snob. My mum never claimed her bus pass. She never claimed anything that declared her age because she said, well, if I get knocked over or something happens to me or somebody nicks my purse, I do not want evidence of my age in there. Over 21, over 21. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I'm going to follow my mum and I have no idea why Ian actually proudly put it up on social media that he's got his bus pass, but he is going to tell us. Um, I was thinking though with it, and this isn't related to Ian's age um, or our age. Actually, we're all the same age. I know I'm older than you, Ian. But I relate everything to age, as you know. But do you get to a stage that you just think you're worried about things falling off or not working? You know, like physically, and you do attribute to your age. You like having a little fall. It's seen as something that older people do. Now, okay, you can have a little fall at any age, but when you have a little fall at our age, it's like. They've had a wee fall. You can get off with one fall. If you have two falls, you've you're yeah, two falls and you're out. Two falls, you are out. Um, two falls. It's questioning whether. Do you're... you worry about that? Well, I'm not good down my buttocks thing again, but that's a problem. <laughs> it's I'm not, not your not pelvic down floor, my buttocks but it's again. <laughs> it's Let me have another like, bit of tablet. It's kind of like holding yourself together. That, that thing you're loose. You kind of like loosen up all over. Well, are you talking about your flatulence? I am talking about flatulence, and I don't think it's anything to do with the diet, but maybe it is. But it's just, I think that's got worse. I have to say, but maybe you should have more eggs. My mum said they bind you. Christ. Well, I went, I went plant based last year, and then I found my diet to be really dull. Sorry, every plant based person out there. So I did go back to the um, some dairy produce and eggs. And I have to say, they've come into their own for my new diet. Oh, so really? Some egg salad at lunchtime. I don't think it's anything to do with the eggs, although they really don't help. Probably, well, but it's just every, well, it's because everything in your body loosens. And that's mm-hmm. why you have little falls, because all the sort of tendons and joints and ligaments and stuff, they just kind of go, poor. It's like your belly. Everything just goes. Everything just key. I know. Look, that's terrible. Oh. So that's that's more than love handles. I know, but it's because if I had higher genes, then I would be all right. But I've got them. You know that bit. If you get oh, them, forgot it. You're, yeah, you're not, I would, yeah, yeah. I would be wearing lycra. I think about it when, like tonight, is this Thursday? Yeah. So I've got to get on the sleeper train to London as ever oh, from Dumbarton. Uh, no, I'm going from Glasgow Central. I'm hitting the high life tonight, <laughs> um, and oh, God. I mean, people think it's so romantic. Oh, I love a sleeper train. Not when you're doing it once or twice a week. I mean, do, do it, you get your own bed? I mean, obviously you get your own bed. You do. Are you the only person in the sleeper? Yeah, never used to be room. back in the day. You could just turn I up know. and you'd be on with anybody. Can you I imagine know. them doing that now? <laughs> Jesus, God. Well, actually, know, our age, exactly. it could be quite fun, yes. couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, it depends on the conversation. Are yeah. you Carol Smiley? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You could go around the buffet car about half past ten. Is it? You'll do, young man. Um, no, but so... 
I always sleep on the top bunk, uh-huh. you know, so it's only me. So the bottom bunk and the top bunk. And I always purposely go on the top bunk because you get a better sleep because it absorbs the shock. This is All my right. advice to anyone going right. on a sleeper train. But it is an absolutely, totally vertical ladder. Yeah. To get up there and to get down. Now, of course, we know as we get older, our bladders don't always survive the whole night. So you usually oh. have to get down in the middle of the night in the dark. Now, this yeah. is where I get very anxious because I sleep naked. I know that's too much information, but it helps the story. And I think, right, okay, how long am I going to be able to get down this ladder? Um, And so, and the train's jolting, you know, and so... Oh, no! Here's the image. I know Ian Dale's really enjoying this, and I hope he's somebody with a, a creative brain. The image is so, I don't think you need a creative brain me, for this. There's me, naked... In the middle of the night, needing a pee, needing a pee, trying to clamber down a vertical God. ladder that you wouldn't give a three-year-old because yes. you would think it would be too difficult. And actually, this happened the other week. Oh God, I need like a wee heart attack. So I'm like down, you know. And the other unfortunate thing is that there's a mirror on the door, so you get a complete <laughs> view of your own arse <laughs> as oh. you are reversing down the ladder. Oh. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to fall because it jolted a little bit. So I put my hand out. On the wall, I thought, but actually it was the door of the toilet which gave Pushed. way. Oh, no. And so, I mean, I really Flying. struggled to sort of keep myself. And I thought, I am going to be found in the morning with a broken neck, Jesus. naked, naked on the floor of the sleeper train um, cabin. God, the ignominy of that. Oh, my And God. it will be reported, elderly lady found dead, naked, in the sleeper train. I wonder which bit of the body they focus on. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, there None you go. would be good. Um, do you want some emails? No, but yeah, I do actually. No, but of course yes, I do. But no, but yeah, all I'm saying is for God's sake, go for the bottom bunk in the future. I think I might. I, I'll know I'm getting old and I'll know I've given in when I say, do you know what? <laughs> I'll just go for the bottom bunk tonight. That That's when it's it's all gone pear-shaped. Yes, emails. So this is yes. from Stephen. Um, mm-hmm. Hello, Kay. I turned 60 last year, and yes, it felt a bit different from previous birthdays, as suddenly I felt old, whatever that is. But that feeling only lasted a few weeks, and now I feel wise. Oh. Wise. Uh, wise because I've been through a 20-year marriage with two children that ended after divorce over 10 years ago. I don't know why that makes you wise, but uh, wise in that I know what new type of partner I'm now seeking, as I truly believe that marriage should be for life. I feel wise because I know why after 30 years in my first career in technology ended and why I am a social scientist now. And I am grateful for the life that I've had, the places I have visited and the people I have met. So there you go. Stephen has got wisdom. And on a completely different note, before we introduce Ian, um, this is from Mabel who says, my fucks bank account has been <laughs> depleted. On one level, that's fine. I'm nearly 65 and I don't miss it. <laughs> On another level, I've only been married to this husband for 10 years. He has asked to apply for an overdraft. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. I have lied and told him that I was refused. Oh. Um, hi, Ian. How are you? <laughs> hi. I'm very well. Welcome to, I'm just glad that I'm on a podcast with fellow fucks bankers. <laughs> Yeah, are are you familiar with the Fox Bank theory? It was advanced to us first by Jenny Eclair. Do you know it? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. Go on. Never heard of it. It's brilliant. So though. Jenny Eclair's theory is that women have a finite number of fucks in them, um, whereas men have an infinite number. <laughs> I used to have a friend in Germany where I lived when I was 18 and we had one of those conversations that 18 year olds have and he reckoned that you could only have a certain amount of wanks in your life. Oh, all right. And I, I did say to him, well, I'm only 18, but I'll be dead by now. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I wonder if that's for women, women and men, men and women. <laughs> do you think it is true, though? I mean, do, well, do you know if men have an infinite number of fucks in them? I mean, we're women, so we don't know. Um, I think it depends. I think there are plenty of men who just aren't interested in sex at all. There are, there are, there are more asexual people around than, than you think. And it's a real thing, asexuality. I did a phone-in on it once, got a huge number of people phoning in. Um, and then there are other people who 
could be described as sex addicts. I've never really bought into that phrase. I think that's just somebody who likes a lot more sex than somebody else. Mm. It is interesting, that, isn't it? I mean, I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to go completely down the line of sex, though I have heard, of course, your <laughs> many podcasts, and with, with Jackie Smith, you're, you're not averse to a bit of um, smut. No. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's the key to the success of a podcast, get two middle-aged political people talking about smut. And uh, it seems to be what the people want, and we're giving it to them. Well, well, you, oh, well there's you, one here, Kate, it's you. <laughs> I have no idea about politics. Okay. <laughs> you're on your own there. But you've got every idea about smut, so you're fine. <laughs> um, no, I just think, you know, when you get older, the sort of um, hackneyed old gag about women is, oh, God, you know, for, pull nighty down when you're finished and all these kind of crap jokes uh, about it. Um, and that men go on forever and they are ever frustrated. We don't really ever talk about men having anything other than a desperate urge mm. to um, fornicate, I'll stay away from the other F word, until the day they die. You know, you've got to nail the coffin down. I think there is a certain amount of truth in that. Somehow it seems acceptable for men in their 60s and 70s to have sex, but nobody really wants to think about women in their 60s and 70s having sex. Uh, and it's completely wrong. Um, Jackie Smith, my podcast partner, she's 60 in November, so you've got to get her on because she has definite views on this. Oh, right. Okay. Well, um, I'll, I'll take that as, as an entree. So anyway, listen, how, how are you? Because I, I see you've had a heck of a summer. <laughs> it's it's really weird, isn't it? Because I've always dreaded being 60. 50 meant nothing to me, 40 meant nothing to me, but 60 somehow always has. And um, I planned to try and take my mind off it by doing lots of different events in July 2022. Um, I was going to go and see Texas. I was going to go and see Dire Straits. I'd arranged to see lots of friends. And then I got, then I got COVID, having avoided it for two and a half years. And it completely knocked me for six. I had three weeks off work, which I've never done in my life before. I was totally exhausted. I couldn't pick up a TV remote control without being exhausted. So that, anyway, I went back to work um, beginning of July, thought that would be the end of my woes until... Uh, last Friday, when I was doing a literary festival at the Buxton International Festival in Derbyshire, I don't know if you've ever been there. It is the most beautiful mm. place. Oh, well, I have been to Buxton. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, fantastic opera house, which is where this event was taking place. So I was chairing a panel of the great and good talking about American presidents. And it had gone really, really well. The audience loved it. There was about 400 people there. And um, I sort of thanked everyone. They clapped. I got up and I went to move to around the front of the table, um, and the, the guy dimmed the light, so it was almost black. And what I found out later was that not only was the, the stage black paint, but there was also about a foot-long thing on the edge of the stage of black cloth, which mm. clearly, I mean, you wouldn't be able to see. Yeah. So my right foot suddenly disappeared, and over the top I went in front of 400 people into the orchestra pit, which was 12 feet deep. Now, Ooh. I landed on Ooh. a cello case, um, which I think was my saving grace, because thinking back, if I had landed in a different way, I could have been paralysed. I could even have been killed because the, the, the floor was concrete. There was a, I'm going on too long, by the way. Oh, <laughs> there, there was a sort of concrete step. And if I had landed head first on that concrete step, like here, that, mm. that, would, have, that would have been curtains. Um, so I, I sort of landed and I thought, oh, and I just stayed there for a few seconds. There were people sort of leaning over, gawping, saying, are you all right? Are you all right? Obviously, that could have happened at any age and would have been a nasty accident at any age. But is there something, as I say, illogically, because I would do it, I would kind of attach my age to that. Is this because I'm getting older? Well, a lot of people on Twitter have done exactly that. And um, I, No, I don't think it is. I think that you're right. That could have happened at any point. But I, I do feel generally that 
So my sense of balance is not quite what it used to be, that I'm much more tentative going downstairs than I used to be. I, I, I have a fear of heights now, which I never used to have. Uh, I grew up on a farm. I, I would climb ladders onto the top of haystacks and not think twice about it. I wouldn't do that now. Um, mm. Now, I, I don't know whether that just comes with age or whether it's I live a completely different life now. I don't know. But you do, I think, with age, some of your senses change. Mm. Yeah, I'm more careful on stairs, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. I'm going downstairs. I'm just, I, and I'm conscious of being that little bit more. Are you holding on to the banister as you yeah, go down? Yeah, I mean, just not quite as cavalier about kind of mm. moving around. I mean, nothing terrible. I mean, I still exercise a lot and stuff, but it's just, you know, it's barely perceptible, but 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 it is. So why were you dreading 60 so much, Ian? I think because... This is going to sound really weird, and it's a very bloke thing, this, but I've always counted my life in how many World Cups I've got left to watch. (laughs) And you get to 60 and you think, well, it it could only be two or three. Is England going to win a World Cup final in my lifetime? Um, And I know that sounds a weird thing, way to put it, but you, you do start thinking that you may only have 10, 15, maybe 20. I mean, if I go by my parents, maybe 25 years left. Uh, And you think, well, what am I going to do to make my life interesting in those 25 years? For the first time ever, I've got after the Edinburgh Fringe, I've got three weeks off. And I thought, well, I'll, my my partner hates holidays, so he never wants to go on holidays, but doesn't mind if I I go. So I was thinking, well, I will go somewhere and and somewhere different. But given what's happened with the knees, I don't think that's going to happen. So I'll probably just, uh, we've got a house in Norfolk, so I'll probably go there and binge on mm. box sets. But I, I think, well, that's three weeks wasted in a way. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't, I'm not somebody who needs to sort of pack in every single minute that's remaining. But you, you kind of, you do start thinking because you you know what age your parents were, and both of my parents died in the last 10 years, and they, they were both in their 80s, and I'd be quite happy if I survived to my 80s. But it, you do start thinking about death a bit more. Um, and g- given what happened last Friday and the fact that I'm in the process of making a will but haven't actually completed it yet, it sort of gives you the impetus to, to do that properly. Yeah, and... <laughs> Do you find that scary? Do you find it um, sad? Are you quite phlegmatic about it? How how do you feel about that? I think most people, when they start thinking about death, they they want to have a good death. Both of my parents had a very bad death uh, in in a way. Um, uh, I mean, I won't go into all the details. It's just too awful. But um, I, I don't want to die like my parents did. I, I, all this argument about assisted dying, I think that's an argument that needs to be had now because I, I wouldn't restrict it to people with terminal illnesses. I would quite like to choose when and how I die. Mm. Now, I know that's not a popular opinion, um, and it's very easy to construct theoretical arguments about, oh, well, there'll be people who'd abuse it and all the rest of it. Well, that's what lawmakers are there to make to try and stop those sorts of things happening but it can't be beyond the wit of human beings to construct a system that is much more humane than the current one if we see an animal in distress we euthanize it mm. now i don't see an argument well that we couldn't construct a system to, to do that with human beings as well yeah well you know both my Parents are gone, and yours, Karen, uh-huh. as well. I uh-huh. mean, certainly with my mom, my brother and I sat by her bedside um, for two weeks. Uh, you know, she she was unconscious. There was only going to be one outcome. We knew there was only one outcome, um, and it was after nearly two years. You know, two strokes. I mean, you know, it's a familiar story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we sat as I sat and looked at her. You thought about it a lot. Um, and and it and very unpopular, but there is also the impact on the family. And in you know, in our case, thank God, a loving family. And you're just sitting there for two weeks waiting, waiting. for the break. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened with my mother. She'd been in hospital for three months. Um, the NHS, and I, I'm not somebody who slags off the NHS gratuitously, but on um, the treatment that they gave to her was appalling, and I believe they killed her. Not deliberately, but they did kill her. And once we realised, they they put her on the Liverpool care pathway without actually telling us. Once we found out that they'd done that and that we knew that she was going to die, 
I insisted that she died at home. And they, they tried everything to prevent me and my sisters from taking her home. But I, I got there in the end. Uh, we had to have a private ambulance because they wouldn't sort it. Uh, and we had two weeks with her at the end of her life doing exactly what you did, where she could look out into the garden that she attended uh, for all those years. So from that point of view, you think, well, why would I describe that as a bad death? But that, the whole experience and the, and the medication that she was on meant that she wasn't the person that we knew and loved. And that, that's why I described it as a, as a bad death. But we were with her. So from that point of view, um, I suppose that's all, all you can ask. But um, I mean, I'm a gay man. I don't have children. I don't want to end up in a home. I don't want to end up in a, a home where sort of I would be unhappy and it's something that you you sort of you put off thinking about things like this, but at some point you have to think about them. Mm. Get your pair of attorney sorted if you don't have one already. <laughs> Honest to God, I have I have one on, on my email mm. ready to sign. Mm. I, I think, and I think sixty. Not to get all morbid about sixty, you know, at all. But I think that milestone is, if you if you're ever going to think about it, that probably is the one that's going to jog you to start thinking about yeah. it. And then that's not to say that you know the next decade, two decades, whatever, are are not going to be fabulous. Mm-hmm. But you know you have to be realistic. You know, you have got a lot more behind you than you have in front of mm. you. And and to to be completely naive to that fact is, you know, yeah, well, you, you're being naive, exactly. On, on another thing, Ian, I mean, you obviously spend a lot of your time talking uh, politics, mixing with politicians. Um, I wondered if you're becoming disaffected with it all. And i tell you why. I think now that I am older than most politicians, um, which is quite a big deal, actually, <laughs> to become older yeah. than most of the people who govern you. You should move to America. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're nice and old and, and mad over there. Um, but I've lost all sense of awe. Mm. You know, which is quite scary because when you're younger, it's quite comforting to believe, albeit, you know, perhaps in vain, that they know something that you don't know. Yeah, faith that, in them. That they have degree. that wisdom. Mm. But then when actually you're the same age as them and you're kind of looking at them toe to toe, you think, well, oh, Jesus Christ, you don't know what you're doing. You haven't got a Scooby. Mm. I think yeah. you're, yeah, you're absolutely right because most of the people in politics now are either age wise my contemporaries or younger than me. So my view of politicians has completely changed to when I first got interested in politics in my late teens, early 20s. Um, but I think politics generally has, has started to lose me in a way. And I never thought I would say that because I mean, people look at me and think, well, he's, he's written or edited more than 50 books on politics. He presents a radio show every day on politics. He's the ultimate political geek. But you, you, it's interesting that you said that, that you thought I might be coming disaffected because you're absolutely spot on. Huh. And um, I mean, I look at the Tory leadership contest at the moment, which um, is, and I'm thinking, how can they end up with two candidates who are just basically carry continuity continuity Boris Johnson candidates. If you're going to change a leader, then at least give the party members a choice of new people to choose from. But they haven't done that. Um, and lo- last time when there was a leadership contest in 2019, I, I hosted 10 of the hosting sessions all around the country. This time I told them I didn't even want to be considered for doing it because I was so disappointed at the outcome and I I didn't think I could do it properly. But do you think that is because politics has changed or you've just done too many rodeos? I think politics has changed and it's it's not changed for the better. And that's I'm not being an old git saying that. I think most people can just look around them and see how the, the, the art of political discourse has changed. And that's not necessarily politicians' fault. We can I mean, so social media has a lot to do with that. Um but it, it, it also, you'll know this, Kate, you talk to people every day on your radio show, just as I do, and they they help form your opinions or they change your opinions sometimes. And I think a lot of the maybe harder right of centre opinions that I used to hold, a lot of those have been rubbed away over the last 12 years since I've been doing a phone-in show. And when you talk to, when you're talking about universal credit or the bedroom tax, and you get three middle-aged men ring up and each of them starts crying. And I'm talking one after the other. I mean, sometimes you do get people ringing up radio shows and and they get emotional, but this was one after the other. 
and you think something is going seriously wrong here. Mm. I'm in a lucky position. If I identify something that I think is going wrong in the NHS or the benefit system, I can ring up a cabinet minister and they will take my call and I will explain to them what I think is going wrong. And on several occasions, that has actually had, had an impact. But it shouldn't have to be people ringing into a radio show to effect change in government policy. Mm. But are we on a one-way road? That's the thing. I mean, you know, what would it take for there to be some kind of shake-up and, oh, hang on, let's rediscover integrity. Let's rediscover honesty. Let's rediscover a sense of responsibility to the public. Well, that's not going to happen. Politics is cyclical. When you and I were in our teenage years, inflation was at 20%. We never thought that inflation would ever return to 20%, yet here we are, 40 years on, and it has. Um, The Labour Party was incredibly left-wing 40 years ago. We never thought that would happen. We thought Margaret Thatcher had killed off socialism. Then Jeremy Corbyn comes along. So things will will turn for the better at some point. Um, I think most politicians are people of integrity. I don't buy this idea that they're all liars. And I think the word... I used God, to really no, I really don't. Um, I used to have a go at Labour politicians when they would call Boris Johnson a liar. Now, over the last year, I really haven't bothered to do that any, anymore. But I think it's a really divisive thing when we just assume that everyone in politics is a liar, and that that is Boris Johnson's worst legacy in a way, in that he's almost encouraged people to believe that, not just of him, but of everyone else. There are liars in all sorts of different political parties. It's not just in in one. But again, social media encourages us to use these extreme words rather than... Do you remember in the 1980s, um, was it um, Sir Robert Armstrong, the cabinet secretary, uh, was accused of being economical with the actuality? Now, (laughs) basically, he was accused of lying. But... and, and language is so important in these things. Mm. But once we get to the point where we assume that everyone we disagree with politically is a liar or somebody of malevolent intentions, that is really where we're on a slippery slope. I so I really do agree with you on that, Ian. I mean, as you know, I do uh, loose women as well. And, you know, we'll have conversations about politics and politicians, you know, from a different perspective than the one that, that you will for a different audience. Um, but the phrase that I hear often is, well, that one's rubbish, but they're all the same, but they're all the same. No, they're not. And, and I always say, you know what, they're not all the same. And, and I think we do ourselves a great disservice when we do fall into those, um, you know, kind of, these phrases that just get thrown around. It, um, because if they are all the same, then we're up shit creek. But I genuinely don't believe they are. And we need to stop just saying that as reflex action because in it the confirms. End, that is why Jackie and I started our For The Many podcast, because we are people from different political persuasions, but we disagree agreeably. Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart have started a podcast along, along yeah. the same lines, as is better, by the way. Um, <laughs> but we have a laugh while we're doing it. We have fundamental disagreements on on some things um but we've never fallen out and i mean she and i first met when she was home secretary when i used to write i mean i'll admit this now i used to write terrible things about her on my blog but after she resigned um and lost her seat uh, i i did a long interview with her and we just got on and i i like to think that i've sort of been, played a small part in enabling her to rebuild her life. And she's got a very successful portfolio career now. She chairs two NHS trusts. We do Good Morning Britain together uh, once a week. And we be- become a sort of little bit of a political double act. And people, yeah. viewers, ordinary people at home watching or listening, they like it because they know that we're not going to indulge in the usual tribal political games. And they don't like it when one of us is ill and isn't there because invariably the the deputy person will do that and they they don't realise that that's not what the audience want Mm. from that slot. But that's interesting. I mean, what terrible things did you write and how did you feel when you had to (laughs) unthink them? Well, I used to do a, a political blog, not not quite on the Guido Fawkes level of spite and venom, but it was sort of halfway there. And it was quite gossipy. 
And um, I can't remember. I, I remember on one episode of the podcast, she made me read out some of the awful oh, things I'd said about God. her back in like 2008, 2009. Oh, good for her. That was quite therapeutic, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> for who? I know. How on earth did you justify what you'd written? Well, I couldn't. I mean, it, it, look, at the time, she was a Labour cabinet minister. I was wanting to be a Conservative MP, so therefore we were we were better enemies. I mean, that's just how things were. Um, I'd like to think that I've grown up a bit. So, and I, okay, how old was I then? I was in my late thirties, early forties then, I suppose. Um, so you think I ought to have grown up? But that is that was the cut and thrust of politics, and it still is in many ways for people in the game. She and I don't have any skin in the game anymore. She, we don't have any political ambitions whatsoever left. Um, and if we had, it would be a bit bit of a shame because we wouldn't ful- fulfil them. And yeah, we, we've just become maybe maybe more normal people who 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 react in the way that normal people do to things. Dear, I see. Have you become older and wiser? Yeah, and I think it was actually 50. 50 was the age when I, I suppose it was because my mother died a month before I became 50. My dad died uh, six years ago. And on the day that my dad died, when he was still laying on the bed, one of my sisters said to me and my other sister, she said, you do realise we're orphans now. And we all burst out laughing, which was incredibly inappropriate given the situation that we're in, but gallows humour and all that. and. I think it was about 50 when I really knew myself, by which I mean I knew what I was good at, I knew what I wasn't good at, I knew what I enjoyed, and I knew what I didn't enjoy. And it was also the age when chips went off shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a sort of private school education. I didn't go to Cambridge or, or Oxford or Eton or anything like that. Um, and I always remember when I would be in a group of people who had like David Cameron, George Osborne, Ed Vasey, Nick Bowles, people like that, I would always sort of slightly pull back from the conversation because I I somehow felt inferior. Mm -hmm. And it was only really when I got to 50 that I thought, you know what, I don't need to feel like that. I'm not inferior to these people. And I don't have that anymore. I've I've always had a sense of imposter syndrome in, in most of the things that I do, and I still have that. Um, I mean, I can't believe that I've got a national radio show. I've got no training as a journalist or a broadcaster, but somehow I've lasted for 12 years. I've won Radio Presenter of the Year twice, so I must be doing something right. But there's still that little voice in the back of your head that says, well, you're not as good as Nick Ferrari, are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Funny, isn't it? I don't know if that's a bad thing, because I think, <laughs> I mean, going back to... Boris Johnson, I have to be very careful, but I think most people would agree that he is not a, a man who particularly judges himself particularly harshly. Um, I'm skirting their friend. <laughs> um, and I, You're not I, on the BBC now, Kay. I know. <laughs> a bit of self-reflection and a bit of self-examination, I think, is is no bad thing. Can I just take you back, Ian, because um, you've mentioned the 80s a couple of times, mm. Um because when we were first due to have you on here, it was round about the time that Dame Kelly Holmes um, came out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it really made me reflect on that. And the one thing that really made me reflect was that she said, and she came on Loose Women, actually, um, that all of those people who reacted to that with, oh, well, I knew she was gay anyway, for God's sake, I knew she was gay. And, you know, hands up, I was one of those people who said, well, I assumed that. Um, and she said that assumption just wasn't, you know, didn't do me any good because what she needed to do was to own it and to to feel in control of the information and in control of her herself as she declared it. And and so it really made me think. And it also made me think back to that time in the 80s. It was so different, wasn't it? I mean, so for you as a gay man, did it make you reflect? Well, I didn't. I always knew that I was different from the age of eight. I knew that I wasn't like other boys. I, I, if you'd said to me, well, did you know you were gay? The answer was no, but I knew I was different. Um, and there was always an attraction there, but I had girlfriends in my teenage years. I had girlfriends in my 20s, but I would always stop things before they got to a certain point. And I did have feelings for these girls. I wasn't sort of being totally hypocritical, even though there was always a part of my brain that knew that this would not actually go anywhere. And 
I can always remember the University Freshers' Fair, I went to University of Norwich, and there was a gay society that I walked past. And the guy said, uh, come on in, join up. And I just, no, I'm not, I'm not gay. He said, well, you don't have to be gay, it's just to show support. And I just sort of scuttled off and I thought, oh, my God, that's, that's an awful thing to, to do. And, it, and I, there's probably too much information for you, but I didn't do, do anything sexually with another guy until I was 28. Mm. And it wasn't, it wasn't deliberate. It was, it was just sort of, it happened. And if that had happened at the age of 22, it would have been much better for me, I suspect. Mm. Um, but once it did happen, then I kind of didn't really look back. I didn't, I didn't come out to my family until I was 40. Um, mainly because I didn't want to upset my mother. And there were a lot of, a lot of gay men will relate to that. Um, I wish I had done it earlier in retrospect. I have very few regrets in my life, but that, that is one. Um, my parents knew my partner, John, who I met in 1995, and we're still together 27 years later. It's like a century in gay years. Um, <laughs> and... Um, but my mother never spoke of it again. She came to our civil partnership, but it was quite difficult for her, not, not so much for my father. Um, so I can't really talk about, I watched the It's a Sin series on Channel yeah. 4, all about being gay in the 1980s in London. Well, I was in London in the 1980s. I started work in 1985, working for an MP in the House of Commons. So I ought to have been able to really relate to a lot of the scenes that they showed in that series, but I couldn't mm. because I, I wasn't out. And it was only really in the late 1980s that I sort of edged into that. I remember going to a, a bar in St. Martin's Lane called Brief Encounter. And I just kept seeing people going downstairs. I think, well, what's down there? So, of course, curiosity got the better of me. So I went downstairs and it was very, very dimly lit. And I just sort of stood by the wall and just observed what was going on. And this guy approached me and I assumed he was about to sort of hold out his hand and say, hello, I'm whatever. And he stuck his hand down my trousers. God. And I said, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very polite boy. <laughs> and, and, and then uh, a few minutes after that, I saw a cabinet minister's special advisor. And the, the, the thought that I might be recognised in a place like that, okay, I'd recognised him. Um, so we, we sort of, it shouldn't have been a problem. But I did think, what is a cabinet minister's special advisor doing in a place like this? Um, so... It was, and I'll be quite honest, in the sort of really in the, in the early 1990s, um, I mean, I was a slut. I made up for lost, <laughs> I made up for lost time, basically. Um, <laughs> um, and then I met my partner through what, an incident of sluttiness where I'd, I'd gone on the, the equivalent of grinder, I suppose, in those days was a thing called a CompuServe forum. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, what a turn on. Yeah. So I hooked, I hooked up with this guy who we started talking about cars because I, I used to own Princess Diana's Audi Cabriolet, long story, told it before. So let's not, let's not go on that one. And he said, Oh, I've got a friend who'd really like to see that. So anyway, he brought John up from Tunbridge Wells to see, to see my car. Ha ha. It's a joke. <laughs> And your puppies. And and 27 years later, uh, we're together with two dogs, yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you enjoy being a slut? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there are aspects of it that I, I kind of still miss. I mean, I was basically a sauna whore. I mean, I would love going to gay saunas, um, which they don't really exist anymore because I think, I think sort of all these um, so-called dating apps have kind of – because when I when I start before I started out on this journey, gay men would meet in public toilets or in the open air because that was the only way that they they could have sex. Basically, the saunas then slightly and bars opened, and so there were more opportunities. But once the internet started, there wasn't really any need to go to places like that, and because they were some of them were quite seedy. Um, so there wasn't really any need to do that anymore. And so a lot of the things that in the 1980s, 1990s, early part of the 21st century would, would have been commonplace for gay men just don't exist anymore. Mm. Did AIDS not scare you? 
Those adverts, the crashing tombstones. Well, it's really weird because I was saying to John when we were watching It's a Sin, I was saying, I don't remember the AIDS thing. I I remember it it happening, but I don't remember it in, I suppose, because I wasn't part of the so-called gay community, that it, it just sort of floated over me, really. And even in the 1990s, when there was still no... Um, well, there's no cure now, but there, 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 were, there was there were no drugs mm, like, like yeah. um, prep or anything. Um, I just I just made sure I didn't do anything that would put me in danger. So mm. you didn't lose any friends? No, no. I did. Lo- it was, it, I had a boyfriend who was a British Airways flight attendant. I mean, what a stereotype! <laughs> and he had a friend who clearly co- had contracted it, and he would go and look after him. And we, we then wouldn't see each other for sort of weeks on end. And I couldn't quite understand this. But looking back, that was because he, he was basically his carer in the last weeks of his life. So that, that, that's the only really sort of personal connection. Yeah, yeah. My best friend from uni is a, a gay man, and he he lost quite a few friends. And uh, yeah, I remember it very keenly. Um, yes. Would you rather be a young gay man now? Oh, yes. I mean, being 18-year-old and gay now compared to when I was 18 in 1980, I mean, it's like, well, it is different centuries, but you you know what I mean. Mm. You still have um, to tell your parents, though. You still have to tell your mum who's not keen. Well, you do and you, you, do and you don't. Um, this whole thing about coming out, I mean, people always say, well, why, why do gay people have to flaunt their sexuality? Well, it's because anything different from a norm will always be seen as different and therefore you have to explain to someone why you're different whether you're gay or indeed anything else um but it is so much easier now and and as the generations change and we see this in so many aspects of our society you you look at our attitudes to race for example are light years away from where they were in 1980 and that's because generational change ensures that that happens now things are not perfect i think if you live in a small village in the middle of the countryside in Norfolk, it is still quite difficult for you. If you live in the centre of Brighton, not so difficult because it's all around you. And um, I can remember when I when I did tell my parents, I mean, my mother couldn't quite understand what I was saying. What, she, well, I know he's your friend. Mm. I said, yeah. it's a bit more than that. And there was this just this dead look in her eyes, which I'll never forget. And, I mean, I didn't think it had gone too badly. I mean, not as bad as it could have done. And then I remember saying, go, driving home and saying goodbye to my sister. And I said, well, I suppose that went okay. And she said, you have no idea. Mm. And then she phoned me the next day and told me that my mother had told her that morning that she wished she'd never woken up. Oh. <gasps> now, I, I, to this day, I don't understand why my sister felt the need to tell me that. <laughs> But I mean, that is a fairly shocking thing to hear, isn't it? And, and my mother, my mother, I know people always say this about their brothers, but my mother genuinely was the sweetest person, never said anything bad about anybody. So to hear that, that she had said that, I mean, that that did knock me for six. I mean, what do you do with that? Do, do you try and think, well, okay, your mum was a, a kind of victim of your like, of the cultural attitudes that she had been exposed to? Is, is that where you go with that? I mean, the heart I must think have been it, enormous. I don't know where you I go I think that. it was partly what will other people say. What the neighbours think. I think you're right. And we had that when my sister moved in with her boyfriend. That was She thought that was could be seen as quite scandalous. I mean, we're talking about late 1980s here. Mm. Um, and I kept saying, no, no, really, it's not a scandal anymore. Um, and it was only when my cousin in New Zealand, we found out was gay, that I think she kind of thought, oh, oh, so he's not the only one then. Oh, yes. And it almost yes. became, I wouldn't say acceptable, but that was quite a big thing. Yeah. Yes. 
God, if only she'd known you were whoring it round the saunas. Yeah, well, <laughs> can you imagine? I'm sure. I'm sure the videos exist somewhere. Stop it! Don't Stop I it. know. Listen, we're going to play a quick game of bingo if you don't mind. Okay. Um. So these are random questions that we have. Sure. Uh, we'll do a couple. Um. I was listening to your episode with Anthea Turner, and I really enjoyed this bit. And I kept thinking, I hope they asked me that. I hope they asked me that. Oh no! Well, gosh, you should answer the ones you know. Um. So have you got our magic? We're all digital on this. We used to have a bingo machine, but now we've got a shaky phone um so it is number 46 um if you could have a million pounds and another 10 years of life or another 20 years of life but no million pounds what would you choose um well another 10 years on what i would normally have or 10 years from now from now 20 years you take the 20 years yeah yeah Really it depends on the quality of your life, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think if I wasn't financially secure, I might have given a different answer on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another one, please. Uh, 44. Who has had the most impact on your life? Good or bad? Um, my grandmother, probably, because she was the one that got me interested in politics. And she encouraged me to learn German at school. Where at our school we could only learn German if we were good at French, and they, I wasn't actually very good at French, but nobody else was either. So, and everything I've done in my life has stemmed from that decision to learn German. It meant that I went to a particular university. Uh, it was there that I met a, a, an MP, a, a political candidate who then became an MP, who I then went to work for. And it all stems from that. So I, I would have to say my grandmother. I mean, she and I used to have uh, furious rows. She lived with us and she died when I was 17. And we had these most awful rows with each other. And I, w- I would invariably then put a note under her bedroom door, apologising at, oh. uh, at each evening. <laughs> uh, each evening? I, oh, they weren't I, often there. Well, they weren't well, not every evening. But I, I mean, I would love for her to have lived to see some of the things that I've done. Oh. Um, Ian, thank you. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. It really has. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll never look at you the same way again, uh, <laughs> or indeed a sauna. Um, <laughs> but it's been a delight. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you nice so to much. See you. Nice Bye. to meet you. Bye. And you. Well, yeah, wow. I did want to ask him about that scuffle he had, but I didn't have the confidence. What what scuffle? Oh, I think it was with an interview. Um, with a, he was doing an interview on air, and um, somebody came along with a placard, like an opposing one, and he just went for him, and they were rolling about in the ground in a big fight. I, I didn't missed that. I didn't know whether he'd take it very well. So, I, I, because I don't know Ian, um, I was a bit nervous about it, but it's hilarious. <laughs> it made me laugh. I was thinking, who's this we're getting on tomorrow? <laughs> Why did when did you start getting so polite? For God's sake, you should have got in there with that. I missed that one. I know, but I thought, God, you know that way. How how near the end Why can you see it? Because he might just walk out. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's got a bad knee. He wouldn't be going anywhere. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Oh no, that was great. Um, all right, well, gosh, it's an education. This podcast isn't, isn't it? Not, just, isn't, isn't it? Just, just yes. Yeah. Um, well, I'm trying to think. Well, do we know what's on next week? We probably don't, but we will be back. We can guarantee you that with another episode of How to Be Sixty. And uh, please keep coming with your emails. Podcast at htb60.com. Say goodbye, Karen. Yeah. Well, see you at the fringe. Hopefully, <gasps> gosh, you. yes. How did yeah. I not say that? Yeah, well, of course. Well okay. done. Remiss. Yeah, it was remiss of you. See you there. Okay, remiss. Bye. Thank you, Karen, for reminding me that we have our two first ever How To Be 60 live shows at the Edinburgh Festival and Fringe, Tuesday the 23rd of August and Wednesday the 24th of August. Please come and see us. Um, on Tuesday, Nadia Sawala will be joining us, uh, my old chum, and uh, Robert Bathurst. He of Downton Abbey and Cold Feet fame. And on Wednesday, the inimitable Clive Anderson and Jojo Sutherland, a woman with a plan. <laughs>